You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. This week is our pen ultimate show, and what a corker we've got lined up for you. We'll be speaking with Associate Professor Patrick Charles, who just happens to be the Deputy Director of General Medicine at a smallish institution in Melbourne's northeast known as the Austin Hospital. Now, Patrick is emblematic of his medical specialty of infectious disease in that he thinks very laterally, very laterally. For example, most of us would postulate that actually infecting the urinary bladder with bacteria would be a bad thing. I'm looking to Patrick for confirmation of this. Turns out he's discovered with the right sort of bugs, it can actually stop the bad bugs from causing problems. But the thing he's in to talk about today is way, way lateral. It's fecal transplantation. You heard it right, a transpusion. And there's going to be lots of those jokes coming up during the show. Kind of like a probiotic, but with caca. And it's taking the gastroenterology world by storm. Dr. Shane Nanayakara is one of those super bright, super nice young doctors who really should have his own TV show, but he's just way too busy with his job as a cardiologist at the Alfred Hospital. There, he looks after people whose hearts aren't pumping as well as they should be, and he's come up with some terrific tech to help doctors and patients manage the condition. Now, in five years' time, when you see Shane's face adorned on magazines, you can tell your friends you heard him first here on 3RRR. Dr. Jade Googe comes to us from Gippsland via Los Angeles and just recently Australia's top end. I'm making hand signals. No one can see over the air, but, you know, it helps me. I first met Jade when she was an intern four years ago, I think, and since then she's recorded a studio album, moved to LA uh, and formed a successful electronic duo. And in her time off, she flies out to uh, different parts of Australia. And just recently, she's been up to the Pilbara, where she's worked in a rural hospital there. Jade will be telling us how she juggles the glitzy showbiz world with uh, the hard yakka of working in some of uh, Australia's most remote locations. Talk about a bunch of high achievers. Lucky EpiPen and I are here to balance things out. All this and so much more this morning on Melbourne's Triple R Radiotherapy. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning, all. You shouldn't be checking your phone whilst you're on air. You know that. It's rude. I'm just Googling Jade. (laughs) She's on Spotify. She's sitting like two inches away from you. I can see her, but I just want to have a look on Spotify. Hey, uh, Jade, great to have you in the studio. It's really great to be here. How are you? I am very, very well this morning. Such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful time in Melbourne. I love this weather. It's just fantastic. It's great to be alive. Shane, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, We will get to your specialty um, a little bit later in the show, but I've got to say, EpiPen and I saw you being interviewed by Raph Epstein at the Alfred Hospital, and you were just a standout guy. We're both sitting there saying, man, that guy's so enthusiastic. (laughs) We've got to to have a chat to him. (laughs) And uh, Patrick, we've been trying to get you onto the show for months. I've made it finally. Thank you for having me. Um, I cannot tell you the number of times Penny and I have just um, – we've, we've traded so many emails trying to get you on and I've got a bank of questions lined up, so I hope you're ready. Absolutely. With this whole transfusion thing. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Now, Jade, um, tell yeah. us a little bit about how you made the transition from studying medicine and now landing in LA. Yeah, it was um – been a bit of a journey actually so I grew up out in Gippsland and um, 
my family always told me I had to get a real job. <laughs> I used to hide away in my bedroom writing music and getting in trouble for doing it instead of studying. <laughs> um, and then I ended up just my goal the whole way through was just to be able to get a job, get my qualifications, get a qualification so that I can get a job if I need one yeah. and just write music. Does that inspire, is there anything in medicine which kind of inspires like songwriting or lyrics? I mean, I, we'll get to your actual music in a minute, but I mean, we meet such interesting people and their situations yeah. are so fascinating. Yeah, I, that's actually a really good question. I, I sometimes think there's a little bit of direct inspiration, but I think most of the time it's more a, my left brain gets so exhausted, <laughs> my br- right brain just whirs along to try and keep up and starts creating things in the background so half the time I've got to be really mindful not to kind of look like I'm going off into space while I'm trying to remember a melody that's just popped <laughs> in my head when I'm trying to do a consult <laughs> do you I mean are you in situations I found this where I'm in a situation yeah. I think this is just so um so different to anything I've ever experienced I've got to put it down into writing or in, in, in to something which is lateral and different to medicine yeah I, I think to be really honest yeah. I get inspired by everything like I I could be inspired by a couple of bars on an advertising jingle yeah. and find some really deep, meaningful thing about it. <laughs> I don't know. So I, I think sometimes I do want to you know, write down memories about experiences clinically, but I, I don't think that specifically comes out in songwriting because yeah. I think that they're two, for me, two pretty different experiences. Really? Yeah. Um, what about the converse? Do you, I mean, you just said that sometimes you'll have a melody going in your head as you're going to see a patient. Does that happen a lot? Like you're sometimes, kind of composing? Sometimes I'll just sing it to them. <laughs> <laughs> Especially somewhere like, we've got somewhere up really remote and I've got a lot of Indigenous patients. We'll totally have a bit of a sing and they'll yeah. sing me some of their songs and I'll hum along some of my <laughs> little bits and pieces. It's really good for people that, um, because a lot of them don't have English as a first language either, mm. so it's good, good to have a hum together. <laughs> It sounds really ridiculous, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, music is a way of communicating, yeah. Uh, I was, that, that sounds amazing. But I was going to ask, I mean, have you noticed a totally different musical style now that you're up in the North mm. End and how that changes your music? No, it doesn't really change my music. Like, uh, I mean, sometimes I'll find rhythms anywhere just in like somebody tapping their fingers or walking or <laughs> dancing incredible. or something, yeah. But I, I don't, to be really honest, I'm zipping away to all of these short-term locums in a lot of different places around Australia. So I don't really stay in one place long enough to kind of, I guess, be, like, to percolate, have all of mm. the, the sounds and the rhythms of the areas percolate. So, And why do you do that? Why do you sort of do all these sort of different locations, these different locums? Um, just because I'm, I'm predominantly living... Um, I'm predominantly doing music mm-hmm. full-time at the moment and I just... I'm doing medicine um, and doctoring for a couple of weeks here and there and I don't like the idea of I mean I like the idea of being able to help out where I can and do a couple of weeks at a time which are what all all of these jobs offer Um, whereas I feel if I was in a practice permanently I'd be letting people down you know I wouldn't be available to Mm -hmm. them for continuity Mm -hmm. of care as their GP and I wouldn't be available to employers or you know the rest of the clinic Mm -hmm. permanently Mm. (laughs) so guilt maybe (laughs) (laughs) so tell us about LA what's it like living there weird place yeah what's weird about it um honestly I, I don't know what everybody else's experience of america has been but my experience of america really has been there's a lot of third world country elements there as mm. well as huge spikes of privilege mm. and it's just it's bizarre 
And the attitude, we have such, I mean, we're both Western English-speaking countries, but there's a lot of different cultures and there's a lot of different culture between the two places that are quite different and attitudes towards poor people and mm. homeless people and mm. sick people. It's quite different over there, I found. And you were telling us in the green room that you've got a flat in Koreatown. What's, yeah. What's... The worst thing about it is I keep calling it North Koreatown because it's always North... <laughs> like, North Korea is always in the media. And my friends are like, where are you living? And I'm like, North Koreatown. And they're like, it's not... Co- I live on, like, North something street in uh, Koreatown. So I keep calling it North Koreatown. I've really got to stop doing that. <laughs> I, mean, is, I'm, I know there's a large Korean uh, population in LA, so there must be a lot of uh, cultural elements to, to yeah, live in. Yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of... Um, I mean, America's so big. Mm. There's so many different <coughs> cultures there. And it's, it is really beautiful. There are a lot of different places. America's kind of one of those places that's got every country kind of crammed into one geographically and a lot of different cultures. And, I mean, you can drive for a few hours and be at the beach or in the snow or in the desert. It's amazing. It is an amazing country. Yeah, I remember travelling around the States with uh, Dr. Shivago, who used to be a regular on this show till he got lazy and didn't want to come back on. But yeah, <laughs> you can be in the desert uh, or in snow, snow-capped snow mountains yeah. in about two hours. Especially it's, in California. Yeah, it's quite, a, it's quite a wild place. So tell us about the music industry there. What sort of stuff are you doing? I'm doing a few things, actually. <clears throat> so I'm working... I mean, I'm, I'm songwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm writing and doing writing and production for my own project with my production partner, mm-hmm. his name's Carter. Um, he and I do our project, which is Echo City, which is one of the songs that I was showing you mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and I'm doing a project w- where I write for other people. I mean, it's, I guess it's just kind of gun for hire type stuff yeah. um, in lots of different genres. Um, how does that work? Do people? I mean, I know that Prince used to write for Sinead O'Connor. I mean, how does, uh, how does that work? Does someone just come to you and say, yes. I want a song? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, yeah. it's lots of different ways. Yeah. Oh, squeaky, squeaky, oh. sorry. Um, yeah, we've employed somebody to do a spleen song for us. So he's a singer-songwriter and it's bread and butter. It's when they don't get gigs or, you know, there's quiet times. So he's – and he's writing a song for people without spleens. Dink him. Like you get the lyrics. Somebody comes to you, um, Jade, and says, I, I want lyrics and music or they Some, just... It depends. I mean, sometimes you work with... I mean, there's an artist that we're working with um, in a couple of weeks and she's just wanting to break out of the country, a country genre mm-hmm. and become a little bit more pop. So we're doing sessions with her to work on a couple of different songs for her next EP and just kind of, I don't know, inject a little bit of a different style into her current mm-hmm. genre. And does it give you, I mean, which gives you more cachet there, being Australian or being a doctor? Oh, that's really hard. It's I don't want to tell people I'm a doctor because I don't want... I, I, <laughs> no, no, not... Got us all back. Yeah, it's not... not the, yeah, we are. well, actually, I don't mind that bit. I yeah. actually get quite a lot of enjoyment out of people asking me medical problems. I don't know what it is. Maybe maybe I just enjoy medicine, yeah. which is probably ah, a good thing. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's... I feel like there's a bit of a... There's, there's kind of like this rite of passage of you needing to be like an out-of-work musician working as a waitress working as a you know the kind of that kind of thing or a lot of a lot of successful musicians in america have huge amounts of family money right. they're incredibly independently wealthy right um and some of them aren't but yeah. i mean my my production partner and i don't fit into that category at all he's an industrial engineer by trade and um he had the same story as me he's from a little town in texas and so you reckon for yeah. street cred street cred it's- you can't be a doctor <laughs> But, like, speaking to older producers and people yeah. who 
have kids or back pain. It's great. (laughs) How bizarre is that? So you reckon that would probably go against you rather than act for you in terms of cred? It it really depends who you're talking to. It it goes for you in a lot of ways because people are like, there is a bit of an attitude sometimes towards musicians and songwriters that you just want to sit around and not actually work and get Mm. up at midday and don't, you know, you don't know what hard work is. And Mm. I'm just like, you want to talk to me about (laughs) (laughs) about hard work? (laughs) But... um, so I, I think it really depends. Sometimes it works for you and sometimes against you. I think that's – I actually just heard myself say a hard R like Americans. And <laughs> sorry. It's really – they, they don't understand me when I speak Australian. Mm, I had to relabel everything in the kitchen, like porridge and sultanas, because it was annoying me that it all said oatmeal and raisins. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess it's, it's one of those things where – you know, being in a different culture really highlights the things that are exceptional about your own culture and your own life. So, as you say, you know, being a doctor, uh, being Australian, um, you know, where you come from, you kind of really get a different point of view of it when you are somewhere else. And it's that geographical yeah, change absolutely. that makes a big difference, I think, a lot of the time. I was going to say, it's amazing because you've had these different experiences of being Australian. You've been in Gippsland and country yeah, Australia, then you've yeah. gone overseas mm. and seen how LA sees Australians, and then you've gone to the Pilbara and seen yeah. Australians up there. It's a, mm, it's a mm. different thing everywhere. Yeah, it is, it's really, it is really different, I guess. And even going to Sydney, I, was, I mean, I've been working up in coastal New South Wales, and even there is totally different to Victoria. Absolutely. Melbourne's yeah. better than Sydney. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, Big country. Big country. nodding around the table. <laughs> um, well, now, Jade, you're going to stay in for the rest of the hour, I, I hope. I'd love to. Terrific. Um, EpiPen, it has been a momentous week for uh, Australia. Um, I'll, I'll let you uh, talk about the announcement. Greek, Greek, Greek. Um, so what happened last Thursday? The Thursday oh, just It was gone. the medical Woo-hoo. staff dinner for uh, the psychology <laughs> department. It was no. fantastic. I had a bonza time. Gay marriage. Yeah. Oh, marriage equality. <laughs> and I was particularly moved by an article in The Age yeah. about a man who's 98 and marrying his partner of 39 years. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, Uh, just all these years that they've been together and not probably Mm recognised as having a really, you know, whatever the difference is about it, acknowledged relationship. And so I just thought I'd pull out some trivia and um, who knows how many countries are now accepted. Was it the 26th? Yeah. Yep. Was it never Wales? (laughs) Yeah. And who, who was the first country? Where was the first country that accepted? Ireland. No. I feel like I want to say it was somewhere like Sweden. Nearly. Nearly. Denmark? Yeah, well, it's. I'm going to give you a clue. Oh, no, um, yeah, Netherlands. At, Netherlands, got go. it. 2000, 2000 they ex- uh, made it uh, legal to have gay couples marry. But I was just thinking because um, a friend of mine, her daughter died and her partner, she'd been living with her partner for five years and they had children from another marriage. And the, the, if, if they had been married, they this partner would have been on the in the funeral notices and would have been part of the care and they were de facto and the parents of each side didn't recognise mm. this relationship, didn't like it. And 
you know, I just think all of there's a whole heap of things that now open up to people in gay marriages. And I was looking at, I'm not going to go through them, but there are, Tony Abbott said, well, de facto is pretty this much the same legally. Mm-hmm. But when I when you go through it, there's so many different reasons. The ripples. The ripples be- are enormous. Yeah. It's in death notices, caring for people, IVF. There's a whole heap of reasons why the legality of a marriage is has so much more power than a de facto relationship. So go Australia. Fantastic stuff. Um, I mean, I did say our, our staff dinner because our director got up and one of the first things he mentioned was this is a momentous day for Australia and there was, you know, just applause and cheering from everybody at all the tables. It was really quite special, really. Yeah, so. and, and they were saying in the House of Parliament when it was the bill was passed and all the yes and the no, mm. and apparently people were worried about the foundations of Parliament when because there were so many people on the yes side, That's it looked like the building was going <laughs> to It was listing. Parliament House was listing. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we're going to segue from somebody who was a bit hesitant about doing medicine to somebody who's firmly entrenched. <laughs> Associate Professor uh, Patrick Charles. Good morning, Mel. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, My pleasure. Uh, look, uh, we might just uh, ask you, you know, what your day job involves so you've got a, we've got the credibility behind what you're going to talk about because it is a kind of interesting area, I might say that. So tell us what you do for a day job. I've got a few roles. I'm at the Austin Hospital and yep. at that hospital I have two main jobs in uh, clinical medicine. So yep. one in infectious diseases, so looking after patients with various types of infections, some that they catch in hospital, others that they come into hospital with. Uh, on top of that, I'm also working in general medicine, so kind of covering a, a bit of everything uh, in the general medical field. And I also have a role in teaching the junior doctors and the medical students at the Austin. Now, Penny will know I'm not being, EpiPen will know I'm not being obsequious when I say this, but the infectious disease doctors were always considered the um, kind of, the, the, the kind of the intellectuals that you would bring into a case, sorry Shane, that you bring into a case, <laughs> if you didn't know what the hell was going on, you'd bring in an, an ID doctor and they go, oh yeah, it's this antibiotic, oh come on, you know, Mal, it's clearly cirrhosis or it's this or it's that. I mean, you, do you get that kind of thing, like referrals from Every single discipline? Uh, we do. Like, we have to have a pretty general knowledge because obviously you can have infections in any body system and then you've also got to have a bit of a knowledge of the things that can mimic infections. And so you can't just kind of limit yourself to kind of one area. You've got to know a bit of everything. Oh, so here's, a, here's an interesting question. If, what percentage of the referrals of the cases that are referred to you as an infectious disease specialist actually end up being an, caused by an infectious agent? If it's a somebody who's been unwell for a short uh, short period, it's it's quite high. Okay. But if it's been going on for a long time, then the percentage starts going down. So if somebody refers you a patient who's had fevers for a year, then your, your chance of finding an infection starts to become mm-hmm. pretty small, and you're more likely to find something that's not an infection. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now tell us, how did you get interested in transplanting poo? Oh, it happened uh, kind of serendipitously, and we yeah. uh, I'd had kind of bit of interest in reading what people were doing overseas with this and then we had a, a patient in hospital who it was a pretty crazy story where this uh, elderly patient had been had come into hospital with heart failure with Shane might be interested in this one mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, had been put on some Lasix some uh, fluid medication to make her pass more urine and then she complained to the nursing staff that she was passing a lot of urine and so then the nursing staff informed the junior doctors that this patient probably had a urinary tract infection because she was passing a lot of urine 
And so then a junior doctor said, well, I'll give her some antibiotics. And then she ended up with a complication from the antibiotics of having an overgrowth of bad bacteria mm-hmm. called Clostridium difficile or C. diff. And uh, that was normally something in the past we'd just treat with some extra antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these days that's getting harder to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, this patient ended up not getting better on the standard antibiotics to treat the C. diff getting worse and worse and eventually she was in intensive care looking terrible and, and we were thinking what we're we going to do we're we going to call the surgeons to remove her entire large intestine and because of reading about poo transplants overseas I thought well why don't we try that first and we just let me butt in for a second sorry so just to sort of command B command you underline what you just said antibiotics can cause an overgrowth of a bad bacteria called Clostridium difficile so bad that sometimes it can't be treated by standard antibiotics so bad that can actually co- might require the removal of a bowel. That is correct, yes. That's, I mean, and you just think of this tiny little antibiotic that everybody takes all the time. That's one of the rarish but, but known complications. Yeah, and this, this antibiotic this patient received was something that is very likely to be given to you by a GP, just a very kind of mild, cheap, yeah. old-style antibiotic, which yeah. a lot of people get given. So uh, your patient is in ICU facing the prospect of having her large bowel removed. Uh, yeah. What happened then? So we thought, well, why don't we try this before we go down that you know, huge yeah. surgical pathway? Why don't we try a faecal transplant? And so we looked around her family and found a donor in the family who was healthy and got them to... Uh, provide a sample for us and then gave it to the patient uh, which you can either give it via colonoscopy if they're not all that sick at the time or you can give it at uh, the top end if they're a bit sicker yeah. because she was so sick and her bowels were dilated and inflamed we couldn't do the colonoscopy approach because sure. that might have ended up perforating her yeah. bowel yeah. so we uh, did a, a gastroscopy so putting a tube down her mouth into her stomach and then beyond that into the small intestine and then squirting down this sample of the, uh, the family member's uh, poo and that then fixed up the C. diff so that was successful and so she ended up not needing the surgery uh, so it kind of fixed that problem but uh, yeah so uh, since then we've done it a few more times with uh, various other patients with either sometimes it's because of a patient like that where they've got a very a very severe case of C. diff other times it's where they've had C. diff once tried treating it and they've got a little bit better but then when you stop the treatment it comes back again and it just keeps coming back and they're not all that sick at the time but they just can't get rid of this damn diarrhea problem Mm. Mm. and so we end up doing it for kind of recurrent relapsing disease or very severe disease what sort of looks were you met with when you said to the family we want a sample of your poo to uh put uh into your patient's uh, large bowel i mean that's that's why out there yeah it it does sound gross but actually for most people they're kind of pretty desperate and so when you say well actually this has been shown to be really successful yeah then they think "Mm, okay yeah why not better than the surgical approach yeah do you have to i mean what sort of test do you run on the donor poo before you use it so we need to check to make sure that they don't have C. diff and also we look for other types of things that oh, could be sure. transmitted. So yep. the blood-borne <clears> things like hep B, hep C, HIV, and then other um, causes of diarrhea like salmonella, for instance, and then also parasites that they could pick up potentially. So things like strongyloides, which you can pick up from, yep. you know, goes through your feet and you can even get in the top end of Australia. Mm. You know, I first read about this when I was staying at uh, Dr. Doolittle's Holiday House in um, Rye. <laughs> Um, there was there was a, a New Yorker magazine, and there was a there was an in depth article about uh, fecal transplantation. And one of the the stories that really gripped me was a a um, it was a young woman who had terrible um, inflammatory bowel disease, and really the only thing 
that made her better was, I think, using her husband's poo. And it, it I mean, effectively reversed her, her illness. It was quite startling. I mean, are you seeing that uh, poo transplantation being used now for things other than Clostridium difficile? Uh, at my own hospital, we're not doing it for other reasons. We're kind of, some of the gastroenterology people are looking at that as an option for things like inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the data so far has been a little bit mixed there. Mm-hmm. So there have been some really successful cases and then other ones where it hasn't worked. Some people recently have been looking at multi-donor infusions for, for oh, inflammatory right. bowel disease and maybe that's having a slightly better effect. Uh, but it, it, people are doing it, but just, it's not universally successful. Yeah. And so um, yeah, even people doing it at home, if you have a bit of time on your hands and a bit of a gross fetish, then you can look <laughs> up home faecal transplants and people are doing that. Well. So um, one of the things that I read was that about personality changes, that is there any link with or what you're in your reading or experience that people can absorb um, some of the personality traits of the donor? There, there have been anecdotes of that. So people who've never been depressed, who've gotten a transplant from somebody who has had problems with depression in the past, have then subsequently had their first episode of depression. And you know, that potentially is a bit... Uh, no, it's not cause and effect, but if you've had this terrible C. diff problem that's left you very unwell, then obviously you could get depressed because of that. So it's not just because of the transplant, but it, it's interesting at least. Do you find that working with faecal transplants, that there's a huge amount of puns that can be made <laughs> while you're at work? Definitely. Do you, have a, do you have a really... Do you have like a... I imagine When I imagine a group of doctors getting around talking about this really seriously, I just imagine a room full of straight faces and people trying to get away with the most outrageous puns at every presentation. Correct, but not at yeah. the straight faces. <laughs> My frontal lobe is working overtime to resist the puns right now. I'm so am I. I'm, I'm really, I'm just, I'm just like, come on, you can do it. <laughs> be professional, you're live on air. <laughs> uh, My favourite one was, uh, as kind of taking the lead in this uh, interest in the hospital, was becoming known as the Grand Pooh Bar. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant, I can imagine. <laughs> that is now your radio uh, sobriquet, the Grand Pooh Bar. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, so we know it works for Clostridium difficile in some cases. We know that there are case reports for faecal transplantation working for inflammatory bowel disease. Are there other conditions that it may be useful for? There are definitely people using it for all sorts of reasons. So uh, there have been people doing it for irritable bowel. There have been people right. doing it to mm-hmm. actually to try and help with weight loss. And mm-hmm. uh, for the similar reason with the depression thing, uh, that people who've been overweight, who've had a transplant from someone who's been a healthier weight, mm-hmm. have then ended up losing weight afterwards and vice versa. So people who've been underweight and then had a transplant from someone who's been overweight have then ended up taking on more of the characteristics of the donor. And Mm-hmm. Yep, what's what's the theory behind it? It's still something we're learning a lot about. The the microbiome, which is the mixture of bacteria inside our bodies and particularly inside our bowels, is incredibly complex. And so there's really thousands and thousands, probably millions of different types of bacteria there. And in fact, we're probably more bacteria than human. So if you look at the total number of human cells in your body, there's at least as many bacterial cells, if not more. And uh, then if you look at then uh, bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria, there's about a hundred times as many bacteriophages in our body as there are human cells. So we're kind of this life support system for all these little organisms, and um, we're just starting to get to the very tip of the iceberg of learning about the microbiome and what effect it has on us. So, uh, but probably. You know, there has a profound effect on how we absorb food and what types of nutrients we get out of food. And, uh, for instance, if you 
look at people eating certain foods and trying to estimate what's the glycemic index, which is how mm-hmm. fast the sugar levels go up. If you compare that with their microbiome, certain microbiomes with certain foods will have completely different glycemic index. So it does have a very different effect on things like that. Is there a way that you can know whether it's going to be successful or not? Or how do you choose which members of the family, if multiple people, surprisingly, put their hands up? Is there a way that you can say this will be more successful or less successful? It's, it's been pretty successful all around. So if, as long as you take a healthy donor, and uh, so we do make sure that they haven't had antibiotics recently, that they haven't done too much overseas travel. But uh, if we uh, use a healthy donor, then the success rate has been well above 90% and close to 100% for most of the studies. Um, I'm not called EpiPen for any for any other reason than I've got this great passion about epidemiology. So, um, Pat, are you following? Have you, are you following? Have you got a database and you're following these patients up and can write a, a case series? Or we, we certainly are trying to do that, and we, we haven't done long term follow up of the patients because once they're kind of well and fixed up with their CDF, they don't really want to keep coming back to hospital. Um, so, but we're certainly keeping an eye on both our own patients and patients from around the world to try and look at what are the potential long term hazards. Um, so. Because, uh, yes, we might be fixing the, the problem of the C. diff or the, if other people are doing it for things like um, irritable bowel. Uh, but what are the long-term effects? You know, obviously, there's this issue of mental health and changes there and changes in weight that we've seen anecdotes about. Uh, but then there's also things like, well, if you look at people getting chemotherapy for cancer, you can predict the effect of the chemotherapy on the cancer based on their microbiome now so that some microbiomes seem to predict better response to chemotherapy and so so just take us so you you get somebody's microbiome as you look at the bacteria in their gut and that will predict how they will respond to their chemotherapy agents yep so this appears to be some types of patterns of microbiome which are good for certain types of chemotherapy to work better for your cancer that's incredible yeah it's very weird so potentially people will be doing fecal transplants when you get diagnosed with your cancer, all right, we'll give you a transplant so you've got a good microbiome so that your chemotherapy works better. That is astounding. And chemotherapy is often given intravenously too, mm. so it's not even going via the gut. Yeah. That is amazing. So if you, when you transplant, uh, when you do a transplant, the recipient will end up with a microbiome signature closer to that of the donor. How long does it take to revert? Does it revert? How, how does it work? It's, it's interesting. So the... Um, once we do it as a fecal transplant, the, the um, change in the microbiome is quite profound and it does mm. stay much uh, quite like the, uh, the donor for quite a long time. Whereas if you look at, say, somebody who's <coughs> taking their, uh, their Yakult or some other yeah. probiotic, mm. you can find the, the, the probiotic bacteria in their uh, stool while they're on it, but as soon as they stop it, you can't find it anymore. It doesn't stay yeah. there. Whereas with fe- fecal transplant, it does stay there for a long time. Yeah, that's amazing. It gets in, as Mrs. Marsh used to say on the uh, the ad on TV. Anybody older than forty, or that ad. Um, uh, complications? Are there any complications from it? There are. So um, uh, there's these kind of the uh, procedure-related complications. So, for example, causing a perforation. Oh, you mean putting a scope down into somebody's yep. tummy? Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, then if you're putting it in the top end, if the person uh, does end up vomiting, then that's no fun for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so. Then on top of that, there's a sort of the potential for longer-term complications that we really don't know about. So things like, obviously, the uh, mental health and the mm-hmm. weight changes, but also, you know, does it affect your cancer risk? Does it affect your heart mm-hmm. disease risk? We just don't know that yet. And I guess if you don't screen for, you know, pathogens, that there's a risk of, you know, getting a virus or a, some bacteria. Yeah. Mm. 
And, and dosing, is there a dose response that you can titrate or work out per person? Hard to measure. We, we get the donor to have a high-fibre diet in the lead-up to it and to take a laxative the night before and we aim for a, uh, a sample that's bigger than 50 grams. <laughs> Do you know, um, when I was reading about this in, I think it was New York, there was, a, there was a, a couple of guys in New York, I think, who were starting up a poo bank. Do we have that in Melbourne? We don't yet and that would be a great thing. So... When we have a patient who's sick and we have to do screening of the family members to make sure they don't have any mm. potential uh, things that could be transmitted, that does take a while. So mm. sometimes when someone's very sick, it, it's a major pain to be waiting that long to be doing the transplant. So if we did have a healthy bank of stool, that would be great. We could then get on and do the, the transplants more quickly. And even better in the future will probably be um, you know, uh, poo in a capsule or crapsule. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's... That's yeah. the, uh, the long-term aim, that we don't have to do it as a transplant. You just take it as a, a crapsule and away you go. So there might be people listening here uh, uh, in the audience that are on antibiotics or have had some diarrhoea. Is, uh, is there any new health advice with probiotics or is that still sort of a little bit the jury's out? So the probiotics, they, the probably the reason why they're not fantastic in terms of their success is they're just not complex enough. So the microbiome is incredibly complex and if you're just adding in a small amount of one type of bacteria or a handful of bacteria, it's just not enough to kind of have that uh, beneficial change on the microbiome that we need from, say, a faecal transplant. So they're definitely not going to hurt, so happy for people to take probiotics if they like, but there's just not a whole lot of evidence to show that they do a whole lot of useful things. Mm. So what do you see the future? Five years from now when we get you back on radiotherapy and we ask you to talk about faecal transplantation, what do you think we'll be saying? I think it'll be in the form of crapsules. I think yeah. that'll be the, the main aim that we change for. And they'll have, we've now learned that if you, you know, freeze the sample and keep it there for a while and then thaw it out and give it, it still works just as well. But I think we'll probably have uh, some store of some you know, happy, healthy weight person like uh, you know, Brad Pitt or Matthew McConaughey <laughs> giving a constant oh, Celebrity poo. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can look just like them. <laughs> I can see some entrepreneurs just, you know, their brain ticking away. It's yeah. like the new Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a name coming from that. Yeah. <laughs> Grand Poobah, Associate Professor Patrick Charles. Thank you so much uh, for coming into the studio. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Studio, we have um, the Grand Poobar Associate Professor Patrick Charles. We have cardiologist from the Alfred Hospital, Dr. Shane Nanakaya. Yakara. Yakara, I apologise, yeah. I have it in front of me. Nurse Epi Pan and Dr. Jade Gooch. Shane. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> a cardiologist at the Alfred Hospital. I mean, that would have to be, Dinkum, sort of, you know, the apogee, the height. Of, uh, of for a young specialist to, to get to. Now, it's incredibly hard to get to your position. I think everyone's, I mean, everyone goes down a different path and everyone yeah. likes different specialties, but I've always really liked cardiology. There are some things like ID is definitely, it's a very cerebral specialty. It involves a lot of thinking, ID being infectious diseases, diseases, as the Grand Poobah does. Yeah. Uh, and for, with Jane, with doing GP, I couldn't do that because you're changing so many things, not only mm. your location, but every patient you see is something different. Yeah. And for me, when I first looked at cardiology, 
physiology or looked at the heart, I just thought that that makes sense. There's something I can I can get about how the heart works. It's just a pump. It pumps blood to the body and then it breaks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's circumscribed, yeah? It's like just one organ yeah. pretty much. Yeah, there's a yeah. small area there. There's the whole, you know, there's the blood supply, but really it's, it's just that area. Uh, and, you know, when you put it like that, it just sounds so bloody simple. I mean, it's a heart <laughs> that pumps. I mean, how hard can it be, really? And yet we, we're still learning, like every year there's just this vast sort of forest of, of knowledge that comes out about the heart that we didn't even know. Absolutely. There's always something, I mean, even blood pressure, which is something so simple, so common. Last month, the, the guidelines have changed. So it used to be that if you're above 140, that's the time to think treatment, you've got high blood pressure. Yeah. And now it's more than 130 that you should be treating people as, as if they have high blood pressure. So that's, that's a fair shift. I mean, before, you know, a lot more people are going to be on medication now yeah. and we're aiming for a lower target. Right. What, just out of interest, what prompted that change? Was it an American study, Australian study, European? It's probably five to six years of different people's studies. There's a, a big American study, but yeah. also a few European studies that have all shown that the lower you aim with your targets, the more success you've had in terms of preventing stroke and preventing heart attacks. We know that if your blood pressure is just 20 higher, so you know there are two numbers to your blood pressure, yeah. and if the top number is, we call it your systolic blood pressure, yeah. but if the top number goes up by 20, you double your chance of a stroke or a heart attack. And so so they thought, well, if you drop the guideline aim down to 130, we're going to help a lot more people. So uh, I studied this a bit in general medicine with uh, the elderly patients, so particularly uh, over 80s who have the issue of frailty, where a lower blood pressure is associated with high mortality when it's below 150. Yeah. Do you think these guidelines are going to lead to more of these elderly patients getting unnecessarily treated and potentially worsening their outcomes? That's a really good question. I think frailty is something that we don't all understand because a lot of these studies and guidelines, they focus on the fact that people are older. So they'll say, oh, you're over 85 and you're elderly or you're over 75 and you're elderly. And the problem is there's this, this concept of ageism. There are mm. people who are 85 who are very fit and well and they're going to the gym and they're on Instagram and they're having a great time. And there are people who are 60 who are frail and bedbound at home. And so if we treat people and say, you know, because you're this age, I will not offer you this therapy, it doesn't always make a lot of sense. Yes, as you get older, there's more frailty, but really we need to be considering the patient more specifically and thinking, is this person older or are they actually frail mm. and so i think when there are some recent trials that have said in the older population actually maybe that doesn't stand up as much maybe we can aim for a lower target and certainly we know that older people are the ones that are more likely to get heart attacks mm. and strokes and mm. things so i think those studies in the elderly looked at uh, the elderly patients who were essentially very healthy they Correct. couldn't have any comorbidities so exactly right mm. and it just shows that it's not about age it's all about frailty and we need to think if uh, doctors are talking to patients are we assessing them just by age or are we looking at how frail they are. Mm. So your interest is in pump failure. Now, when I went through medical school, there was only one type of pump, like your heart didn't work and that was it type of thing. But apparently now there's all sorts of different types of heart failure. Yes. It's, yeah? uh, so basically, if you think about your heart, it's just a pump and it's pumping blood to your body. And to do that, it's relaxing to bring blood in and then it squeezes to pump blood out. It's mm -hmm. got those two phases and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a problem with either of those two phases. And in the olden days, as in uh, a little while back, right. it was that just that you had a problem with squeezing out, that you yes. would have a massive heart attack, yeah. you could 
couldn't squeeze properly and you'd feel symptoms of heart failure. So you might feel short of breath mm. or you might have swelling in your legs mm. or you might have swelling in your abdomen. Now we know there are a whole group of patients who have the exact same symptoms, but their heart squeezes normally. And that's because there's a problem with the relaxing part. Their heart doesn't relax to bring blood in. Mm. And it has the same problem. It's not pumping as much blood out, arguably, mm. because it's not bringing as much blood uh, in. Right, right. But most importantly, the pressure goes up in your heart, that goes back on your lungs, and you feel more short of breath. And what do you tend to do with that as a cardiologist? That's a real. That's been the biggest dilemma for the yeah. last ten years. We've had all of these treatments that are available for people who have problems with pumping function. Yeah. So we have medications, we have special pacemakers and defibrillators, and even all the way to mechanical hearts. But for people with weak hearts, we don't have any major treatments. We have a few scattered medications that people might think would be useful, but we're not sure. And we know that exercise can help, but there's a bit of variability about what kind of exercise is good and how do I exercise when I feel short of breath. Uh, so it's very variable at the moment. You know, it's funny you should say that about exercise because, you know, I'm a doctor and uh, so, you know, I've got a bit of a knowledge about hearts, not a lot. Um, but, you know, I tried to find information about exercising and heart function and I found it really confusing. It's really difficult. I think for patients, I mean, yeah. they would go to different doctors even and people yeah. will say, well, we say 30 minutes five times a week yeah. and that's it. But then if I was a patient, I think, what if I can only do 10 minutes? Do I do 10 minutes five times a week or do I do, uh, you know, try and do all of it in one day and do it three times a week? It's very difficult. And what kind of exercise? Exactly. You know, do I go to the gym? Do I do squats? Do I try and swim? Mm. I mean, all of that. And what help does that have for my heart? So is there sort of a one size that fits all basic for heart failure or do you is it one of those things where you just absolutely got to individualise it for the patient? It's definitely individualised and I think it, you have to always think safety is the paramount yeah, thing yeah, so you yeah. don't want to push the heart here the heart's the whole problem with heart failure is that the heart doesn't match what the body needs yeah. um, the, to the term can sound very frightening for people when you say your heart's failing they think well that's it pack it up yeah. I'm done but yeah. it's really yeah. it's just saying your heart can't match what your body needs mm -hmm. and if you can then control your body to be training in the right way so that your heart can be helped then that's great so one of the analogies you can use is say a bodybuilder or someone who's trying to lift weights. If you want to lift 250 kilos, you don't start with 250 kilos. You mm. gradually step it up and you train that muscle over time, mm. but you do it with the right exercises. You mm. can do all the squats you want, but that won't help you lift yeah, the yeah, 250 yeah. kilos. Yeah. So we offer, what we say is you say, let's individualize it by the patient. Here are the right group of exercises. Here's the right gradation. This won't be too much for your heart. That's how you're going to help it. Yeah. Now, one of the, um, one of the, the I guess, uh, new things that you brought into the Alfred is the use of, of of apps. I just love this apps and apps, apps. Everything's <laughs> about app. Tell us about some of the technology that you brought in. I, I, the interest for me came from the fact that apps are everywhere outside of medicine often. So, you know, if you want to interact with your bank, you're on your app. If you're texting someone, you've got Facebook and Insta, you've got all of that. So it's really good to bring it to medicine. Whereas if you want to interact with someone in the hospital, you have to send a fax. Exactly. That yeah. horrifies me. I know. That we've got I had to learn how system. to use a fax machine when I was an intern because I'd never even seen one before. And then you call someone up and you ask for results and then you're standing by the fax machine. And I don't know if people picture doctors just standing no. and looking at fax machines. They and always think to the I'm toy. joking when yeah. I say I have to wait for the fax to come through. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you do this at the Austin, but at the Alfred WhatsApp. So they, um, the ward rounds are done on WhatsApp and the residents talk to each other and they meet each other and if somebody's mm. short and there's a lot more sharing of patient care if mm. somebody's in a unit that's not so busy. 
And that's partly the risk with apps and technology is people are saying, you know, we've got to talk about privacy and where's my data and who owns it and that type of thing. So the, the, where the app idea came from is the apps can make things a lot easier for people. For, for example, interacting with my bank. If I don't have to go there to do a bank transfer, that saves time. And same for patients. If I've got a condition that's complex like heart failure, then I want somewhere that I can store that information that I stored, that as a patient I own it. One of the common complaints I haven't had is people come to hospital and they say, uh, so you've got my medications and then I'll say no we don't we don't have a system like that we just I know your medication six months ago when I saw you but if your GPs change them there's no way I can know and people are disappointed and rightly so rightly so because it's like going to a bank absolutely it's like going to the bank and saying you don't know my bank balance because I hope you do so uh, we so the way is if you can have an app that will keep track of your medications and keep track of your blood pressure and your weight and your fluid balance or whatever else we wanted to track with your heart failure then you own that and then you can see your progress over time the exact same way you might do with a Fitbit or looking at how many steps you've taken how do they share that with you then as a doctor do do they put you on a link or something absolutely so there's a portal basically that doctors and patients can both see into so they use the app and we'll use a secure site and it's exactly like banking we use a similar or higher level of security so that nothing's uh, open and available Mm -hmm. and patients can communicate with their doctors and at the same time if the patient changes doctors well then the patient can say I don't want to give that person access anymore I'll change it to someone else or I can give it to my sister or my brother or my parent so that they can see what's going on with me as well. And so the health information on what, what's your app called by the way? So it's called Pump. Pump. It's uh, I should say awesome. it's not available yet but we okay. will be very soon. So on Pump um, you store patient uh, medication uh and all information that they enter, not that you enter. So it's only their, them entering it. Correct. So at the moment, the, the, one of the things that you might see is there's this rise of wearable technology. And I mentioned things like a Fitbit before, but the idea that people have an Apple Watch and it stores your heart rate, or people might have scales at home that can record their weight and yeah. send it up to the cloud. There's a lot of information now that we want to centralize and bring it together. Yeah. And so if you step on your scales and it takes your weight automatically, well, then it'd be great for us to have that because mm-hmm. that's a really important measure for us with people who've got heart failure. Talking about wearable technology, three of us, actually it's the three men in the studio, are all wearing uh, Apple Watches. What does that say? No, you're, you're old school. Um, yeah. doing I, don't, <laughs> I don't have one no either. Watch. No watch. But I did, True um, artist. I did, yeah, I did drop my phone the other day and the screen cracked and then I went to swipe it and I got a, seg- a shard of a oh. screen in my finger. So I think, does that count it's as being embedded. augmented? <laughs> You've internalised it. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, just, you know, what strikes me, Shane, I mean, all power to you for doing this. It's, it's bloody brilliant. But it strikes me that why hasn't somebody done this before? It's, you know, you know the biggest thing is uh, not everybody's going to be able to do this. As uh, in, not everybody wants to put all their data onto their phone and not everybody wants to track it like that. And some people just want to write down a piece of paper or not yeah, at all. And yeah. I think going for that method where you say, well, this is available at least and we should offer that. Yeah, and if you yeah. want it, great. The other thing has been around uh, security and enough people having phones. I mean, yeah. uh, we were talking before about frailty people often say well if you're over 75 you're just not going to have a phone and you're not going to use that and I hear that a lot and I think well I've seen a lot of patients who've got a phone and they use it like this and they're on doing things that always surprise me and that generation is becoming much more common as smartphones Absolutely. become prevalent. My 90 year old mother has got an iPhone Perfect. and you know, is able yeah. to use it probably as well as, you know, as my 14 year old. Exactly. And she introduced you to Echo <laughs> City. <laughs> <laughs> she hit you up on Spotify. And yeah. Oh, yeah. She follows me. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, what other? I mean, you're doing a few other things in the technology realm, from what I understand. What else are you doing? Uh, so the other interesting thing is artificial intelligence, and I think that's generally coming yeah. uh, a much more prominent thing in every field we do. But yeah. in medicine, it's becoming really interesting. The idea that a machine can look at certain bits of data, and people are worried: uh, is it going to replace doctors or replace other professions? Um, so I find that a really yeah. interesting area to work in. Yeah, I think wasn't it just a week or two ago the first artificial intelligence in Japan just passed the medical exam? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. there was a there's a, 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 there was maybe one in Japan. Well, there's one in China definitely who yeah. uh, it passed. It read all the data, it read a bunch yeah. of textbooks, and then using those textbooks, it was able to answer the questions that were on the exam and passed it. Yeah. And people were horrified, thinking, "Oh no, this is going to be the replacement of doctors." The thing that hasn't been realised yet is there's a difference between artificial intelligence and general intelligence. And humans have general intelligence. All that machines do now to be intelligent is they can read lots of data and, and then they synthesise and they figure out patterns. Mm. And using those patterns they answer something which is to be fair a lot of medicine but it, they can't be creative and that's the bit where humans have got that mm. edge and that's why hum, at the moment artificial intelligence will be augmenting us mm. and it will augment mm. us in amazing ways that's something that i often say to to junior medical doctors who i teach because they have way more knowledge than me so when they go to sit their exams i mean there'll be no way i could pass the exams now because they have the content knowledge. But I think what, what as you get older as a clinician, you have the, the wisdom to kind of see patterns and it's kind of implicit. It's like breathing. You don't think about it. It kind of just happens a lot of the time. Absolutely. You know, and I think artificial intelligence will be great at content, but it won't be good, as you say, that creative sort of thinking out of the box a bit and looking at everything together. Absolutely. I think it's, it's yeah. uh, I see it a lot. I have, uh, I have two sons, a six-month-old yeah. and two-year-old. And when I see my sons playing with something or learning something, I think, oh, this is great. They're learning the patterns they're figuring out. Yeah. And then every now and then they <clears> do <throat> something that you don't expect at all. And you think that's the bit that made you different to a machine trying to look at data and figure it out. You, were, you stepped up and you, you did something unbelievable. And that's where we differentiate ourselves. Just, I still think... Um, not, I still think. I think, though, that uh, that we will use AI um, to assist us, as you're saying. Uh, and I think that the, the, the specialties which it really seems to be encroaching at the moment are things like radiology. Yes. And uh, yeah. I've been reading that um, some companies have been buying up huge banks of uh, X-ray films. You know, getting a computer to go through them all to identify certain patterns. And I think, you know, radiologists. Uh, um, I think are going to use that more and more. Like we used to use, you know, the ECG machine that you, that you cart around Absolutely. and it gives you the readout. Yes. It says, you know, this is an inferior infarct, but you've got to have a doctor or somebody look at it as well. And well, a healthy exactly. dose of scepticism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That little tagline yeah, yeah, says. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. what will happen with the machines reading yeah. an x-ray. But And people often say, well, if it can't read it with 100% accuracy, what's the point of it? Mm-hmm. But if you imagine you have 20 x-rays that you have to read and you go there in the morning, yeah. if the machine could reorder the list to say, this is the most significant, I think this is lung oh, cancer or this yeah, is a bleed or nice. something like that, yeah, yeah. so can you read this one first, then that actually will change patient care because someone's getting a diagnosis faster, be it x-rays or CT. <clears> so <throat> even if it's just prioritization, that's a great example of how machines and humans will interact to speed up care or even more importantly if we go out to more remote regions if you can take a photo of a blood film or something like that and you don't have access to be able to screen for malaria but you can do it now because there's this ability to uh, use a machine that's looked at thousands Mm. of slides of malaria then that's that's a useful thing do you know what i think would be useful when the machine spits out a result is that it will say i've got this level of confidence like it's an inferior infarct and i'm 100 percent certain or i'm 35% 35% certain. So at least you know as a clinician, like, I've really got to look at this thing now. Absolutely. And it's like a junior doctor when they tell you 100% confident, you go, oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> what junior doctor says that and what's a job next year? I'm 100% confident. No way, man. No way. Um, absolutely fascinating. So where do you reckon we'll be? We've only got about 
a minute left. Where do you reckon we'll be uh, in five years' time when the Grand Poo Bar is back talking about, you know, how uh, poo transplantations have changed uh, the face of medicine? Where will we be with technology, do you think? I think technology is going to permeate a lot more of what we do medically. The two big changes you're going to see are that artificial intelligence will be applied to more areas than you know. The same way Facebook looks at pictures now and it's using AI to picture who are your friends and what are your links and what you can do. And I think the other thing is that a lot more will be in your hands. There'll be a lot more of your own record in your hands. You'll have a lot more uh, on your mobile. Uh, That's going to be a big move. Yeah, uh, look, I think you're right. I think we're going to own our information a lot right. more than we have in the past. And we're going to be much more literate with it too. And, and security around that data? That's a great question. I think you're going to see a lot more data out there. It's exponential at the moment. People are getting better at security. It's a bit like the banks. There, there are You hear these bits where security's been let out and data's been a problem, but overall it's been done pretty well, hopefully. Thank you so much, Dr. Shane Nanayakara. We're going to have you guys back on the show. It's been fantastic. Five years. Just, Five years. <laughs> well, well, you know how we produce this show. Just very quickly before we end up um, on radiotherapy, I saw probably one of the best plays I've seen all year last night. It's called Last Words by uh, Joseph Sherman, uh, John Bolton and Chris Bolton. It's on at the St Kilda Parish Mission Uniting Church. I actually saw it in somebody's um, house last night. It was fantastic. It's on until December 17. That's Last Words. You can... Uh, Look it up on uh, eventbrite.com and it's called Last Words. Thank you so much for listening to us this morning on uh, Radiotherapy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.